Hello, and welcome to the With Jay Burke Show. My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs or want to come away with new knowledge or a simple understanding of subjects that aren't always easy to break down, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. In most history books, you'll find the given start date of World War II is September 1st, 1939. That's the date when Hitler invaded Poland after signing the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. That was a non-aggression pact between Germany and the Soviets, which allowed them to partition Poland between themselves. A little less than a year before, Neville Chamberlain was applauded for peace in our time, saying... The point is, uh, you're welcome, I guess, because I'm your nuclear deterrent. It's working. We're safe. America is secure. You want my property? You can't have it. But I did you a big favor. I have successfully privatized world peace. What more do you want? Well, that was actually Tony Stark in Iron Man 2. But from what I've been told, if you were in London when Chamberlain said it, it came off just like that. So anyway, peace. Well, peace... The truth is that peace is only attainable from the perspective of those who get to remain at peace. Preceding events, however, tell you that peace was never in our grasp. It wasn't even an arm's length away because true peace was never ever in sight. Peace has always been an illusion. Were not the actions and events leading up to this infamous September 1st date in 1939 any kind of indicator? Japan's invasion of Manchuria in 1931... Italy's invasion of uh, Abyssinia in 1935 or the remilitarization of the Rhineland in 36, the Spanish Civil War the same year. How about the Sudan crisis in 1938? All of these play a factor in that date becoming so significant in history. Maybe we can even look back further. Perhaps it was written in blood ink in Article 231 the so-called War Guilt Clause in the Treaty of Versailles, signed in June of 1919. Those same negotiations had a ripple effect on not only paving the way for a nationalist rise of Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party, it also emboldened the Japanese, who had held themselves the disenfranchised and often part of the colonized non-white world at the time. They felt that they had finally held a seat at the table of American and European powers, the expectation being that a new world order would open up and an opportunity to have a principle of racial equality recognized by leading global powers. That was all but squashed by Woodrow Wilson, mostly, but the other powers failed to see them equally as well. Japan decided that force would be the only way to secure this type of equality. But before the devastating effects of the Treaty of Versailles could take place, there was the first armistice. In 1918, the Central Powers were faced with an imminent Allied invasion. So the Germans sent a delegation to the Supreme Allied Commander, Marshal Foch. Foch's headquarters were situated in a converted railway carriage in the forests of Campion in northern France, I have no clue if I said that right, but we're going to go with it. <laughs> the German delegation thought they were there to negotiate. Foch made it abundantly clear to the delegation they were there to sign the armistice, no matter how lopsided its conditions. And on November 11th, 1919, the armistice was signed. 
five years to the day of the murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the very act that officially kicked off World War I. To many Germans, Adolf Hitler included, the signing of the armistice in the forest of Campion was the ultimate betrayal, national humiliation. It meant they lost the war. To the French, it was one of their greatest triumphs. So 22 years later, in June of 1940, after France's embarrassing defeat in the Battle of France, Adolf Hitler specifically chose this location and even had the carriage used in the original armistice, take it from a museum as the place where France would sign its surrender. For Hitler, it was the ultimate act of revenge. In the common German's eyes, it meant a long agony they had endured. Wasn't for nothing that this was a protracted extension of the First World War and one in which they never lost. But history doesn't stop here. We know the Germans would suffer another defeat. We know what was left afterwards. A crippled Europe, uh, an Asian disarray, the atomic bomb, carved up territories in Europe and the Middle East, and two superpowers with opposing views facing off with the fate of the world a nuclear detonation away. Sorry to sound like a bad rewrite of we didn't start the fire here, but the point is these events have a way of unfolding on themselves each event building one upon the other until like a river against the dam. Eventually, the levees give way. The cracks of the dam explode. The world is at an inflection point, the largest military conflict in Europe since World War II is ongoing. The invasion has caused the largest refugee crisis in Europe since that World War II date. With refugees flooding the border, countries to the west such as Poland, Romania, Slovakia, Hungary, and Moldova. At least half of the children in Ukraine have been displaced. And according to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Russia has lost a quarter of its fighting force. So things, you know, might not be so dire as they were five weeks back when we thought the Kremlin would easily overwhelm the Ukrainian resolve. But Russia still has nuclear weapons in its back pocket, and we may have nuclear deterrents that are in place for direct attacks on NATO, mostly the policy of mutually assured destruction. But what's the line if a tactical nuke lands in Kiev? There's no playbook. We have no war game simulation that tells us the outcome of this. We've been in these situations many times before in the last hundred or so years. The actors change, situations are fluid, but we're holding our collective breath because we're waiting to see if that dam is finally going to break. So I hope you don't mind, but today we're going to discuss what I think may become a series about this conflict to explore all the events that led us to this moment. This one will focus on the fall of the Soviet Union and the expansion of NATO in its wake. There's no guest to speak of, but I will be introducing a special person of focus who almost single-handedly may have shaped the incidences occurring today. And I can pretty much guarantee you've never heard of him. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. He's basically a ghost. So enjoy. The Jay Burke and the One Man NATO Expansion Machine Show. Watch out, you might get what you're after. Strange, but not a stranger. I'm 
to the With Jay Burke Show. My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. Today, I have the very special privilege of speaking with myself. Uh, yeah, that's who's here today. Just me. Today, we're going to take a look at a story in which the world has moved on and stayed the same all at once. It always does. Uh, the history hasn't been written on the outcome, but we're at a fragile point. And, well, it does have a beginning. What makes this the same is that the world always thinks it's past this point. We read history books and think we've learned our lessons, but the world circles its way around to the same spot. An autocrat has put the world on notice again. Most will claim emboldened by easy annexations with relatively half-hearted Western objections. But that's the kind of binary thinking that has us closer to a nuclear exchange than we'd like to admit. But unlike his previous moves, Vladimir Putin is trying to pull off an 18th century tactic in the 21st century. He's looking at old czars and kings who took lands on a whim because who would stop them? The international community didn't exist at that time. And today we're more intimately connected than ever before by telecommunications, satellites, trade, the internet, uh, road, rail, and air networks, financial markets, supply chains, even TikTok and Facebook. But this interconnection, in theory, should have insulated the world from this. But now, while the devastation of war is playing out within the borders of Ukraine, the risks and repercussions are being felt across the globe. How does this story start? We're going to take a multi-episodic approach as there are so many players in this. But today, we're going to take a look at one actor in particular, the one-man NATO expansion machine. So join me. Take a, take a trip in the Wayback Machine to 1989 or 1990. Come on, Uncle Phil. This is the 90s, man. Man, it's the 90s. It's hammer time. This is the 90s. The 1990s in point of fact. Does your girlfriend have a girlfriend? It's the 90s. Very. I'm going to try to do this quickly, but there are a bunch of anti-communist protests that swept across Central and Eastern Europe, and especially in East Germany. The Berlin Wall falls in November of 1989, and up comes the question of German reunification. NATO is now a force that appears to have no enemy. So according to historian Mary Surratt in her book called Not One Inch, she says there's an exchange in a very early conversation in 1990 between then U.S. Secretary of State James Baker and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, whose relationship had went from I must break you to I like you a lot. <laughs> Baker floats this idea of letting Germany reunify in exchange for NATO moving not one inch eastward because the fears of that day when Russia might seize a European territory seem like a purely 20th century nightmare, a fiction of sorts. Gorbachev's like, okay, I'll think about it. But when Baker presented this idea to George H.W. Bush, Papa Bush, well, Bush says, read my lips. This passing praise supposedly never comes up again. Gorbachev and Baker never speak about it in negotiations, and in no agreement between NATO and Russia is there any mention 
of the legality to expand farther east, a process that began with the admission of Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary as members in 1999. Subsequent agreements, like the NATO-Russia Founding Act in 1997, also made no mention of a prohibition on eastward expansion. So why is this such a hot topic now? Putin has said the West has broken promises, that the West treated Russia as an enemy and humiliated them. It's, it's one of his citing reasons for invading Georgia in 2008 and annexing Crimea in 2014. NATO says it's always had an open-door policy to its members. So what I told you was true, from a certain point of view. The only reason this phrase is important now is because NATO has expanded eastward four times since the Clinton administration. But it wasn't always this way. Once the official dissolution of the USSR in 1991 happened, overnight NATO had gone from protector of the Western world and the sacred values of democracy, <laughs> capitalism, and became a relic of a bygone era. But there's an interesting man in this story. His name is... Is Kaiser Sose. Well, no. that's His name is actually Bruce. Bruce Wayne Nespa? No, no. His name is Bruce P. Jackson. I promise on my life the whole episode won't be like this. <laughs> if you want to know something very interesting about Bruce... He was president of the U.S. Committee to Expand NATO, giving intimate dinners for senators and foreign officials. And in 2003, he had this to say to Jules Evans in a piece named Bruce Jackson, The Man Who Took NATO East. When we started in 1995, around 70% of editorial boards and 80% of think tanks were on record as being opposed to NATO expansion. There was concern Russia would go ballistic if we did expand NATO to the east. So effectively, people were suggesting we do another Yalta and sacrifice the region to Russian interests. It took us considerable amounts of work. We organized well over 1,000 meetings with senators and Congress. By 1999, we won 89% of the vote. With the second round, almost all the effort came from the countries themselves trying to accelerate their own reforms and not be left out. At the time the article was published, Bruce had already traveled relentlessly, meeting heads of state, uh, foreign ministers in every European country, advising them on how to reform. Bruce literally is the one-man NATO expansion machine. I actually took some time to read some transcripts of these committee meetings, and it was interesting how wrong um, this situation some were. But some were absolutely right. So I actually have an interesting clip here. I think you'll recognize the voice, although it's a little younger and more vibrant. But let's see. Check it out. I think the one place where the greatest consternation would be caused in the short term for admission having nothing to do with the merit and preparedness of the country to come in, would be to admit the Baltic states now in terms of NATO-Russian, U.S.-Russian relations. And if there was ever anything that was going to tip the balance were it to be tipped in terms of a vigorous and hostile reaction, I don't mean military, in Russia, it would be that. All right. So what does this tell us? 
This tells us that Biden understood the consequences. He just didn't respect them. He didn't respect a weakened Russia. And like so many others, he didn't see this coming where Russia could rise again. They were concentrating on that moment. Why don't you check this clip out, too, because this is interesting. Our conversations with Ganoff, which was repeated with Levitt. They talked about they don't want this NATO expansion. They know it's not in their security interests and on and on. And said, well, and if you do that, we may have to look to China. And I couldn't help using the colloquial expression from my state by saying to Zaganov, lots of luck in your senior year. Um, you know, uh, good luck. And if, not, if that doesn't work, try Iran. Um, and uh, I'm serious. I said that to them. And these were very, and, and, and they know, I knew, they knew, everybody knows that that is not an option. And everybody knows, every one of those leaders acknowledges and needs, and they resent it. But they need, they need to look west. And the question is, where this is designed to completely shut them out. Well, Joe, here's the thing. The bond between Russia and China has never been stronger than it is now. And on Thursday, April 7th, NATO Secretary General Jen Stalenberg said China's failure to condemn Russian aggression against Ukraine represents a serious challenge to the entire North Atlantic alliance and that Beijing has joined Moscow in questioning the right of nations to choose their own path. Now, China's mission to the European Union maintains they have always upheld a fair and objective position and promote efforts towards peace within this conflict. The China mission also claimed that NATO is a relic of the Cold War era, and it's becoming increasingly aggressive in its targeting of China. So again, Back to the 90s, Biden understood, then underestimated the consequences because Russia was no longer a threat. Russia basically asked for a friend and not a military buildup at its doorstep and then threatened to look towards China for safety. Then Biden laughed and said, let's see how that works. So today, Biden and not Biden alone, by the way, but all the people who had power over this or were in power. Well, now they're seeing how it's worked out. I'm pointing out Biden because just the irony of the whole situation. But anyway, we're off track. Let's get back to our boy, Bruce, because his influence in this could not be more understated. The U.S. Committee to Expand NATO is what's called a private NGO. What exactly is an NGO? Well, NGO stands for a non-governmental organization. It's a nonprofit group that functions independently of any government. So NGOs are also sometimes called civil societies. Uh, they're organized on community, on national and international levels. They, they're supposed to serve a social or a political goal, such as humanitarian causes or the environment. And listen, NGOs do plenty of good work in this world, just like a lot of nonprofits and other networks of the citizenry. But there are NGOs that can run billion-dollar budgets and rely on a variety of funding sources from private donations and membership dues to government contributions. Some can often become depraved spending pools that fund first-class trips, luxury hotel stays, and fine dining with Washington insiders. And as you heard in Jackson's own words, they can influence policy. 
So why was expanding NATO so important to Jackson and this committee? Did they want to lock up everything west of Russia in a democratic stranglehold in case the day came where Vladimir Putin would rise? Maybe he had a precognizant awareness, a Cassandra moment, a modern-day Winston Churchill who saw the rise of an authoritarian Russia destabilizing the region and democracy. Maybe. But it sure was strange to learn about Bruce Jackson's day job. See, during this time, Bruce held the title of assistant to the regional man. Actually, it was director of strategic planning for the Lockheed Martin Corporation, who was the world's who is the world's biggest weapons manufacturer. But listen, he wasn't alone. According to a New York Times article from June 29th, 1997, named arms makers see bonanza and selling NATO expansion. Jeff Gers and Tom Weiner write, Defense contractors are acting like globe-trotting diplomats who encourage the expansion of NATO, which will create a huge market for their wares. Billions of dollars are at stake in the next global arms bazaar. Weapons sales to Central European nations invited to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Admission to the Western fraternity will bring a political prestige, but at a price playing by nato rules which will require western weapons and equipment the stakes are high for arms makers said joel l johnson vice president for international affairs at the aerospace industries association a trade group whoever gets in first will have a lock for the next quarter century the potential market for fighter jets alone is 10 billion he said those jets will require flight simulators spare parts electronics and engine improvements then there's transport aircraft, utility helicopters, attack helicopters, Mr. Johnson said, not to mention military communication systems, computers, radar, radios, and other tools of a modern fighting force. Add them together, and we're talking real money, he said. It goes on. The first signs of a military spending spree in Central Europe... To make sure the Senate knew this was an important aspect of U.S. security, Mr. Jackson said his committee to expand NATO recently gave a dinner for a dozen senators at the private Metropolitan Club two blocks from the White House. Over lamb chops and red wine, the senators heard Secretary of State Madeleine Albright explain NATO expansion. This guest list included Bernard L. Schwartz, Chairman of Laurel Space and Communications, a company partly owned by Lockheed Martin. Mr. Schwartz personally donated 601,000 to Democratic politicians for the 1996 election. Lockheed Martin gave 2.3 to congressional and presidential candidates in the 90, 1996 election. Part of a five-fold increase in defense Companies' donations to Democrats from 1992 to 1996. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here, and it's only a bit of the article. One, our government officials have very little say in some key decisions, if any. Two, even bigger than that, major world powers, even unified, are no match for corporate conglomerates when it comes to proliferation of profits. If you look at, and, and this is online, if you look at NATO's enlargement and open door fact sheet, it says to join the alliance, nations are expected to respect the values of the North Atlantic Treaty and to meet certain political, economic, and military criteria. 
set out in the Alliance's 1995 study on enlargement. <laughs> These criteria include a functioning democratic political system based on a market economy, fair treatment of minority populations, etc. Uh, so basically what it's saying is Lockheed Martin could sell off its F-16 fighters to replace old Soviet-made MiG-21s in the hangars of Central Europe. Just to recap, Bruce Jackson, the one-man NATO expansion machine. Jackson was vice president of strategy for Lockheed Martin. That company has done very well out of this deal. When Eastern... Still recapping here. When Eastern countries, when Eastern European countries join NATO, they have to modernize their forces that work with other NATO forces. In practice, this means buying F-16s from Lockheed, just as the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland have done. New member countries are always strongly encouraged to buy weapons from U.S. manufacturers. All this right under the nose of U.S. taxpayers whose money subsidized the arms industry indirectly through a series of Pentagon grants, discount loans, and free leases. So Jackson, who said he does this in his spare time and separate from his Lockheed day job? Yeah, well, Lockheed and the war machine profiters did extremely well because of Jackson's idealistic use of his spare time. By the way, Bruce's spare time resume is just quite extensive. He not only worked on the expansion of NATO, but was on the committee for Iraq liberation back in 2001. This is the same guy who would later say, I really didn't know anything about Iraq when I started. Hmm. He also worked on a committee to get George Bush elected and then helped establish that administration's foreign policy. Jackson's role as head of the United States Committee on NATO and the Committee on Iraq Liberation has proved a valuable marketing tool for Lockheed Martin. It provided a way to gain support among former Soviet bloc countries for Bush's war in Iraq in 2003. Some of the former Soviet bloc actually became part of the Coalition of the Willing, and in 2002, Lockheed Martin reported sales of $26.6 billion, a backlog of more than $70 billion, and liquidity of $1.7 billion. That was before the Iraq war started. Uh, there's just uh, When you start to look back, you can just see the puzzle. I, I found this in March of 98 in the Chicago tri uh, Tribune. Yeah, it was the Chicago Tribune. Um, the top six American military companies increased their contributions to federal campaign committees to 2.4 million in 97 from 1.5 in 91. This was an interesting one. Four dozen companies whose main business is arms have showered candidates with 32.3 million since the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe at the beginning of the decade. By comparison, the tobacco lobby spent $26.9 million in that same period. That was from 90, uh, 91 to 97. Just to get a grip on how someone like Jackson can get a stranglehold on so many politicians, it's because the politicians themselves are in on the game. See, the arms industry encouraged former government officials to become industry representatives. So over the past 30 years... There's nearly 530 members of the Armed Services and Foreign Relations and Defense Appropriations Committee, or subcommittees, I'm sorry, from both congressional houses who left office for jobs as defense company lobbyists. 
By 2005, 80% of the highest ranking army generals retired to take jobs with arms makers. This is how DC truly works. Many of the people making decisions aren't actually elected representatives. It's a cast of networks rotating from the same set of revolving doors connecting government, think tanks, lobbying firms, law firms, and the defense industry. The bond between lobbyists, defense contractors, and the Pentagon is so strong in Washington that the insiders actually have a name for it. It's called the Iron Triangle. And the Iron Triangle, well, inevitably gets what it wants. Why? Well, let's give an example of how this revolving door system of the Iron Triangle actually works. A defense contractor executive can surface as an official in the Department of Defense, from which position he can give lucrative contracts to his former employer. Now his prospects for an even better paying job in the private sector brighten. Former aides to members of Congress become handsomely paid lobbyists for the companies they were able to help in their position on Capitol Hill. Such lobbyists can spread their corporate-funded largesse to the friendliest members and their aides on the hill, and so on and so forth. It all happens again. Forget dime a dozen congressmen. It's the people who make up the K Street oligarchy that, despite all the scathing rhetoric about campaign finance reform and insidious special interests, this is what greases Washington's wheels. So where does this leave everyone today? Among those already reaping gains are companies involved in the production and sales of weapons. This includes 14 of the world's 20 largest defense companies headquartered in the U.S. Topping this list are Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and Raytheon Technologies. The combined arms sales in 2019 neared $100 billion. On February 24th, the day Russia invaded Ukraine, the Wall Street Journal claimed the stock value of these arms manufacturers soared. Raytheon and Lockheed officials openly told investors the Ukraine conflict was good for business. In a company earnings call issued on January 25th, Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes described how they could benefit from the conflict. Similarly, Lockheed CEO James Taslett told investors the great power competition between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine bodes more business for the company. See, we're now paying the price for the U.S. foreign policy establishment's myopia and arrogance. It's a strange stance that I grew up with watching neocons and, and war hawks who praise the founders' visions. You can especially see this in terms of the Constitution being quoted as this living, breathing document, as you've heard in a lot of these Supreme Court uh, matters lately. But they don't espouse to any of the founders' opinions on the matter. I doubt a lot of them have read history books, or they just ignore it. Remember, after Britain and France went to war in 1792, George Washington declared neutrality. He had unanimous support from his cabinet. He decided that the treaty with France of 1778 didn't apply. Washington's farewell address of 1796 explicitly announced the policy of American non-interventionism. He said, The great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is in extending our commercial relations. 
To have with them as little political connection as possible has its own set of primary interests, which to us have none or a very remote relation. Hence, she must be engaged in frequent controversies, the causes of which are essentially foreign to our concerns. Hence, therefore, it must be unwise in us to implicate ourselves by artificial ties in the ordinary vicissitudes of her politics or the ordinary combinations and collisions of her friendships or enmities. In Thomas Jefferson's inaugural address, Jefferson said that one of the essential principles of our government is that peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations and entangling alliances with none. The Monroe Doctrine, which many historians interpret as non-interventionist in its intent, it says, In the wars of the European powers, in matters relating to themselves, we have never taken part, nor does it compart, comport, sorry, these are weird words, man, <laughs> nor does it comport with our policy so to do. It is only when our rights are invaded or seriously menaced that we resent injuries or make preparations for our defense. By the way, he's the most underrated founding father. Just want you to know. Look him up a little bit. But hey, it's not a neocon issue. I mean, Bill Clinton, let's be honest, he's a corporatist Democrat, uh, was involved. Obama's administration tinkered in Ukraine. And Joe Biden, by the way, Joe Biden had a lot to do with that. I mean, in 2014, the current president actually boasted about it. I'm not going to get too deep into it, but if you ever get a chance, you should check out Congressional Dish number 248 called Understanding the Enemy. Jennifer Brimley truly does some amazing work on that program. But I'm not sure if any president hastened this thing along more than the president who keeps on giving, George W. Bush, personally inviting Ukraine into NATO in 2008. Actually, he uh, invited... I think Ukraine and Georgia. I swear, I swear to God, this is 43's world and we're all just living in it. Oh, and then there's the Trump elite. All of a sudden, it's all Biden's fault. After they were saying Russia was a nothing burger and you weren't, weren't you guys wearing shirts emblazoned with I'd rather be Russian than a Democrat? I mean, this dude did Putin every favor he could withdrawing from the Treaty of the Open Skies. Check it out if you don't know what that is. <laughs> oh, and withholding aid in an effort to extort Zelensky's government for dirt on Biden and political opponents. Yeah, I know you don't want to bring that up, but, you know, it is a factor. It is funny to watch the conservative love fest now for Ukraine and how everything seems to be Biden's fault on this one. And I'm not defending Biden's actions in a lot of senses because, well, you heard some of the clip from Biden himself back in the 90s. But unfortunately for all these conservatives who are now solidly supporting Ukraine and the resistance, well, apparently uh, just a couple of years back, Ukraine was possibly the most corrupt government, as you can hear from these representatives themselves. So what I'm going to play here is Mike McCarthy in January 2020, and then it's going to follow up with Mike McCarthy in March of 2022. These are taxpayer dollars going to another country that people believe there was corruption with the new administration. 
I think it was the rightful thing to do. Speaking with those in Ukraine and the president himself, he's never asked for American men or women to be in a battle. All he's ever asked for is give us the opportunity to defend ourselves. Don't let us fight with sticks. Provide them the armament earlier to deter Putin from ever making this decision. And now here is Representative Dan Crenshaw of Texas in November of 2019 and his different tune in February 2022. The new president coming in, whether Ukraine had actually cleaned up its corruption. Much better lethal aid for Ukraine over the last decade would have, would have, would have really helped a lot here. Here's Representative Guy Reschenthaler of Pennsylvania in December of 2019 and then March of 2022. Was rightfully skeptical about the Ukrainians. Their country has a history of corruption, and he merely wanted the Europeans to contribute more to a problem in their own backyard. The Ukrainians should be free to join any uh, alliances they choose. The land that the Russians took, both Crimea and the current land, should be given back to Ukraine. Uh, that should be starters for any negotiation. I just wish that Biden had that kind of resolve, and I wish that Biden was uh, as resolute in defending freedom as Zelensky is. The president. And finally, we have Representative Steve Scalise of Louisiana in November 2019 and February 2022. All that requires that he ensure that corruption is being rooted out before taxpayer money goes to a country like that. Uh, There were things that that Ukraine was asking for in advance. I mean, look, they slow walked anti-tank missiles. They still don't have enough of those. What a difference a few years makes. Maybe they just all saw the errors of their ways, you know? Hindsight is twenty twenty. The about face these congressmen made was quite astounding. But I guess they were sincere since, you know, there was no quid pro quo. And they must have been just genuinely concerned about U.S. foreign aid going to Ukraine. Because at that time, I guess, that particular country might have been corrupt and all the other aid that we gave out that we never spoke about all that time well i guess they just did really great oversight that 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 oversight must have been really tight on that aid because nothing is mentioned about all the aid that goes to other countries but hey the past is the past right why bring any of that up it's not like all of that has anything to do with today right listen president trump for all his flaws Well, he did say he was better at the military than anyone else. And I got to tell you, his most recent declaration on how to stop uh, Russia and China, a two for one. Well, this is what he said. The U.S. should attack Russia with American airplanes with a Chinese flag on the side and then blame it on them. So, yeah, um, Yeah, that seems like it's legit. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. Listen, I don't have the answers. I don't know what actually happens next, and I'm not an isolationist by any means of the the imagination. I'm not a policy wonk, and I'm not an authority to speak on the subject, but I do love to study history, and I can tell you revisiting NATO's own history is not justifying Putin's threats to democracy. It's certainly true. He is a repressive leader who has annexed neighbors, funded separatists, uh, cracked down on activists, and, and, well, I was going to say allegedly poised on enemies, but uh, I don't think it's that alleged. Putin's a thug. He's a killer. Basically, he runs uh, Russia as this huge criminal enterprise, and he situated himself as the godfather of this whole thing. 
Now, some experts say that this criticism NATO expansion that he's using is a mere pretext. But still, the stakes of NATO's presence on Russia's borders were high. And at least in today's Washington, few seem to question that presence. The presence of NATO is needed now because Russia has proven it will be aggressors and that they are dangerous, at least at this point in time. Today, they're an unstable, unfocused, disjointed and corrupt autocracy. But I can't help but wonder if we have this perpetual self-fulfilling prophecy syndrome. We seem to arm agitators and extremists. We topple governments and lands across the sea with money and weapons and promises. And then the blowback reaches us in the upcoming decades. The biggest players in our system decide to plunder riches from faraway lands because we're told that profits and stock dividends are what makes the world go around. But as communism proved fatal in the 1990s, everyday Russians were in an economic and political oblivion. They did look to us for guidance in a new economic climate, one they had zero experience with. And what that population got was state assets pawned off at bargain prices, vast corruption, disregard for the rule of law, and the loss of a national identity. Maybe if we had engaged Russia more earnestly and sympathetically, and by us I mean the world, perhaps we wouldn't be dealing with a Vladimir Putin. Everyday Russians wouldn't have had to turn to a man who provided stability at the loss of their freedoms, just like the Allies in 1919 didn't have to create the means for Adolf Hitler. After all, this is about so much more than NATO and, and Ukraine's possible membership into it. It's been building for 30 years. It's about the future of the European order that was handcrafted after the Soviet fall. The U.S. European allies decided to build a security architecture that Russia had no stake in or no clear commitment. And now Vladimir Putin threatens that system and Ukraine is taking the punishment of all the consequences of these measures. It's not right, but it is the truth. That's why we're here. It's one of the reasons we're here. What the research for this project has taught me is we traded short-sighted, insane profits for long-term stability, just like Washington will trade doing the hard thing, the right move, the moral thing for seats and positions of power and stature at the long-term expense of the voting populace. And you know what? If you think I'm wrong, that's fine. But let's be serious. We're all going about our day like a nuclear holocaust isn't a remote possibility here. And frankly, I'm amazed at how blasé everyone is about it. I mean, I'm flat out admitting this is over my head. I'm out of my element. But you know what? Apparently, so are all those people who had a hand in creating the world in the shape that it currently is in. Thanks for taking some time with me today. I'm sure there'll be more to come and more sides to look at in upcoming episodes. We'll just have to see if I'm, I'll be doing this by myself or with some friends along the way. And please, if you agree, disagree, whatever, let me know. I'm always looking to see all sides, as long as it's from a genuine place. And you can find the With Jay Burke Show anywhere podcasts are streaming. If you like what the show is about, then please take a second and subscribe. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Take care. Take care.